the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Special guest joining us on the program today that I think will help bring some insight and enlightenment into not just what God is doing around the globe, but the incredible ministry opportunity that we have living as residents of the greater San Francisco Bay Area. What is too many a mission field literally right outside our front doors. Joining me is the executive pastor of Harbor Light Church of Fremont, Pastor Tim Inman. Pastor Inman, great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's a privilege. Now, uh, the, excited the, to get a chance to talk to your audience. Always love to have some uh, some time, and uh, certainly today I think the listeners will appreciate hearing from you and some of the insights you can offer there are folks in the audience saying, I think I know that name, but didn't you mean to say Terry Inman? And that's close enough, but Terry is in fact your dad. Yeah, we have a privilege of uh, working with my parents here at Harbor Light, and uh, it's just a treat. Yeah, it's something that after years of ministry, working on other staffs and different assignments, I had always seen his ministry and felt a you know, not, I was going to say kinship, we're actual kin, but, but just felt a real alignment with his philosophy of ministry and what God had put on his heart. And so finally, um, and you'll hear more of my story, but about eight years ago, uh, things aligned and it worked for us to come on staff here alongside both my dad and my mom, who are both pastors. And I think the word, the word kinship, uh, Pastor Inman works because from the, from the sense of, of of the ministry side of what the two of you do together. I mean, we all know the stories. PKs they either have all the reasons in the world to get involved in ministry, having grown up in the church, or all the reasons not to get involved in ministry. And uh, you, of course, chose the ministry path. You're number two of seven boys, and I understand the, that the kind of you know, mom and dad had their own basketball team and a couple of spares. <laughs> That's great stuff. The house was really busy growing up, um, and we had a lot of fun. You know, the all of us boys, there was a lot of wrestling. There was all that stuff, you know, imaginative play that we did when we were little and adventurous play that we did when we were older. And, um, you know, us older ones, we like to say that we helped for good or for bad. We like to say that we helped raise the younger ones. Um, and I think that actually was a really great experience for me um, that became real beneficial later on than when I was a dad, you know. When- but um, speaking of, I just, you mentioned about PKs and uh, there there is kind of a legend that a lot of pastors, kids, you know, rebel or have a bad taste in their mouth or whatever. And I'll just comment on that. My parents never claimed to be perfect. And, um, you know, they were great parents. They were very loving to us, very nurturing, nurturing to us. Um, But there were a couple things that were really great about the way they carried on ministry with a family. One was they didn't let us become like the example for the rest of the church. You know, sometimes pastors hear from other church members, oh, your kids need to be the, you know, they need to be the example, or did you see they were running, or did, you know, they they weren't dressed up enough for church this Sunday, or this or that, and they always defended us that we were just regular kids in the church, and um, that we were going to have our own growing process, and they didn't let us carry that extra pressure. Uh, the second thing was that my uh, my dad would say from the pulpit, things like, you know, I'm the pastor of this church because God has appointed me for that purpose. You know, we all have our role and that's my role, but I don't claim to be the most spiritual. I'm not the holiest person in the church. And there are some of you that are, you probably more devout than me, you know, and he just, he was, uh, I guess, pretty transparent that he was just another 
human being following Jesus Christ. And so people didn't put him on a pedestal. And so we didn't feel like he was a hypocrite. And I think some pastor kids deal with that is uh, they see a person that the church reveres, but that person comes home and just has feet of clay like everybody else. And, and they see the, I guess, the gap. And that wasn't really an issue for us, or at least for me. Well, and I think that also speaks to the heart of a very important truth, the notion that God has no stepchildren. And by that, I mean, I think sometimes we erroneously think that it's almost a, a dynastic form of, of ministry or relationship, that if dad was a phenomenal Bible preacher or evangelist, that naturally the sons and daughters will follow in that same fashion and demonstrate almost a, a mini-me sort of uh, perchance for, for ministry. And yet God calls each and every one of us independently, and our relationship needs to be with him. While our parents are certainly ultimately the most influential when it comes to leading us to Christ and modeling for us what Christ-like behavior should be, what, what discipleship is, Nevertheless, I think sometimes folks in the pews look at this and say, well, the, all the kids have got to be just mini-me's of pastor, instead of recognizing that everyone has unique callings, unique personalities, and they eventually need to discover their own personal relationship with Christ, yeah. not just because they've somehow inherited it by virtue of the fact that dad is the pastor of the church. Right. Yeah, for me, that was... I think I, you know, accepted Christ as, as a very young child. Just, I, I really saw the love of my parents. Um, and then they told me that Jesus loved me. And I just knew it was true because I saw it coming through them. I just saw the reality, of it, right, as a small child. But then you get, when you get to be a teenager, you have questions, you're wrestling with things, and you have different pulls in your life. Of course, you know, there's like you want to be popular, you, you're beginning to notice girls or the opposite sex and all these different things are going on. And really as a teenager was when um, that relationship became really personal for me, um, that I learned that Christ was worthy of my full devotion and also, um, you know, my source for everything I needed in life for the unanswered questions, for the, uh, the drives that I had within me for my failures, you know, so that, that was really the time in my life that that became more personal for me. And exactly what you said, I realized that, you know, just it, this wasn't a, some kind of a um, thing that was just passed on. It was something that I had to choose for myself. I'm curious, you know, every parent, of course, wants their son or daughter to grow up and be successful. If you're a pastor, sure, you'd love to see your children involved in full-time ministry or grow up to be doctors or lawyers or the next president, whatever the case might be. But that's a very individual decision and an individual calling. So I'm curious for you, Pastor Tim, at what point did you feel the Holy Spirit beginning to draw you in deeper to say that it was not just about relationship with Christ, but serving Him in a significant way, and and you know we'll, we'll we'll get a chance today in our conversation to share your ministry work not only here in the Bay Area um, as the executive pastor at Harbor Light, but also a decade of service in the mission field. But I'm I'm curious, at what point did you begin to feel that pull of the Lord to draw you into ministry? I remember when I was a kid, um, being in church and just watching watching everything and seeing my, my dad lead the church, uh, and loving that, loving that, um, he was, uh, he, you know, really seeking the Lord to nurture this community. And I thought, boy, I want to do that. If that was, I'll just admit that wasn't necessarily a calling. That was just, uh, me seeing something as a possibility, um, and, and that was as, as a pretty young kid. And, but then later on, there was a particular church service on a Sunday evening. I was 16 years old. We were getting ready to go on a mission trip. And as the preacher was speaking, I remember I completely disengaged. And uh, I, 
that that's not that uncommon for me. Uh, I may I may or may not have uh, ADHD. <laughs> I'm not too concerned with a label, but um, it's not it's not so unusual. But I disengaged from what the preacher was saying. But it, it was as if God was speaking directly to me, and he and I just began to have this uh, awareness. It wasn't one. It wasn't a specific sentence that I heard, but it was like this thing just built up inside me. This excitement, this passion that. I had to serve the Lord with my life and especially felt that part of that was serving God overseas. And so I, that was when I really began to pursue a path of ministry. I made a decision um, that I was going to be going to Bible college. And just as an example, that I was 16 years old. I was taking Spanish too, and I was getting at best a D. It was very difficult. I'll just as a side note, this is nothing to do with the gospel, but Spanish one is easy and Spanish two is murder. It's hard. <laughs> so anyway, I was as a young student, uh, at least that was my experience. And I was trying to learn all of those imperfect tenses and conjugations and everything. And I was fed up with it. But after this experience, I went back to school the next day with a determination. I said, I'm going to learn this because this is a foreign language, and I feel like God is calling me to share the gospel around the world, and he might use this. So I'm going to improve my grade, and I'm going to learn all I can. And I just, all of a sudden, I had a purpose and a destiny about going back to my large public high school and finishing Spanish, too. I knew that God had spoken to me. Now, we mentioned uh, the the get-go of our conversation today that you did spend a decade in service in the mission field in Ireland. And I'm, I'm trying to make the connection in my mind between Spanish being difficult, but Gaelic not. <laughs> but Gaelic, we didn't even try with Gaelic. <laughs> now, uh, in Ireland, and we're going to probably jump around, but again, that's typical for me, but in Ireland, uh, a very small percentage of the population speak Gaelic or the Irish languages as their, you know, native tongue that they would speak in the home. There are a few areas, especially along coastal areas, that are called Gaeltacht areas. And one of my best friends in Ireland, he actually grew up learning Irish before English. But that's not the case for the, most of the population. Uh, most of them speak English. They just speak it differently than us. And, um, and then they do learn a bit of Gaelic in school as part of like cultural heritage. So there's, I learned a few expressions and if I try to say them, I will embarrass myself with my Irish friends. Um, but I, I didn't learn to communicate fluently, but, but sufficient enough to say, it sounds as if your American English was adequate to be able to communicate. And, and perhaps it's not like parts of Scotland, for example, where, when they speak with that really thick Scottish brogue at the end of their sentence, you say, I know you're trying to sell me something. I'm just not sure what. <laughs> we we lived in the city of Derry and we learned, uh, in, which is in Northern Ireland. Uh, and it's kind of the second city of Northern Ireland, the largest city in Northern Ireland's Belfast, about a million people. Derry, also called London Derry, um, is about 100,000 people. And um, we, the people there, a lot of people there do have quite a thick accent uh, to our American ears, right? So we, it, Northern, I, Northern, the Northern Irish accent set, does sound a little bit like Scottish. Um, when we first got there, people would tell us jokes or pe and we would miss the punchlines or they would say things, they would use expressions. We're like, I know that word, but I don't know what you mean. Uh, or we would miss it for the accent. So really, the first couple months we were there, we just felt like babies. We felt like we didn't know anything, and we were working really hard to try to understand people. You know, if you've ever had a conversation with someone, and you know they, they're telling you a story, and you have to stop, and you say, can you just say that again? And they say it again, and, and you say, you know what? I know you just said it again, but can you say it? another way because I'm still not catching your meaning. And they say it another way and you, you finally just have to give up. That happened a few times. But you know, I think that's, we that, got used to it. I, I think though that uh, Pastor Tim, that's demonstrative of an important point, And that is the, even though we may technically speak 
the same language, people from different parts of the world have different cultures, different senses of humors. The expression of irony is different. I've certainly found in my travels overseas that that if I try to engage in in light forms of sarcasm or irony, oftentimes it's completely lost on the listener because it's it's very cultural to the way we express and, and communicate with each other in the United States that is oftentimes extremely different elsewhere, even if it happens to be a country that is predominantly English-speaking. And I, and I think that really points to the notion that not everybody is the same. We don't all think alike, yet everybody has the same need in terms of being born with sin conditions, separated from God, and the need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to have that good news presented in a fashion that is relatable. Same gospel message throughout the ages, but the manner in which we communicate it has to really be sensitive, I would suppose, in that regard to not only a person's own perspective and experiences, but also in in a form and fashion that can relate to them culturally. Do you think that's true? Is that does that kind of track with your own experience in ministry, both here in the states and overseas? Absolutely, and and we have to learn as Christians to really listen to the Lord to how he how he wants to communicate his message through us, um, and a lot of times. We get, you know, our, our cultural trappings, our words, our ideas, uh, our everything. It, it, it's a filter that Jesus speaks through. We got to make sure we don't get in the way of the message. Is it important, too, in that regard, in, in your viewpoint? And, and I acknowledge we're kind of jumping around here, but that's okay. Listeners can track. Is it important in that regard, too, to also understand the vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in this process of ministry? And, and I, I pose that question because I think sometimes as believers, we erroneously come to the conclusion that we minister to others in the same fashion in which we were ministered to when we came to Christ. So, for example, if we had an encounter with the Campus Crusade for Christ and, and somebody sat down and walked through Bill Bright's, you know, Four Spiritual Laws and, you know, here, here's the throne, where is Jesus, where would you be when you died, things of that sort, that's how we came to the Lord. So we think, well, we're just going to use that same model when reaching others then we might come across somebody that's from a different culture right here at home in the Bay Area that can't relate to any of that. And so then I wonder, in in your viewpoint and experience, how important is it for us to be really sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we're ministering to others to make sure that the message that we are communicating is one that can be most effective in reaching the person that we're trying to address with the gospel? Well, absolutely. I mean, we, in fact, I think the Holy Spirit speaks to the people in our in our lives through His work in us, primarily. And I and what we've come to see over time is that when Jesus transforms someone's life, that work that He's doing is absolutely viral. It's unstoppable. It's what it's so attractive that uh, people are just drawn to it. People see it. And the gospel is really preached through changed lives, I think, primarily. I mean, we, we use words and we do our best to articulate what God is doing. Um, but we all know that even the Bible can be used and misused to hurt people and to actually alienate people from God, to keep people away uh, certainly, Scripture tells us that Satan uses the the, the Word of God uh, for his own purposes. Uh, he believes in God and shudders, but um, the so but the Holy Spirit, when He's um, changing our lives and people can see it, uh, that is what people are attracted to, and people want to uh, they want to come and know the same Jesus that we follow. So I, I agree a hundred percent, and then. I, I know what you're also saying. I also agree with is that he then leads us when we're in those conversations. Um, and we, we just have to take time. You know, I think a lot of us are running around and we've got a list of tasks that we've got to accomplish for, for our life, for our survival, for our family. And, you know, that's not bad. We, we need to do those things. We need to go to work. We need to fill up the tank with gas. We need to get those groceries. 
But it's possible for us to just be in tune with the Holy Spirit as we do those things. And as we're interacting with all these people that so desperately need what we have, um, we, we, can, we can tune into that and just be available to people and the Lord can use it. And, and so, yeah, we certainly at Harbor Light, that's one of our big messages as a congregation that we keep coming back to is how can we extend Jesus to the people in our everyday lives? And yeah, certainly it's being tuned into the Holy Spirit and listening for what he might say to us to the people around us. Pastor Tim, we've talked a lot about your experiences and, and, and ministry. Let's spend a moment in talking about the ministry at Harbor Light Church. My mind, when we speak of issues such as diversity in other cultures, and certainly you're right there in the middle of it all, for folks that are maybe new to the San Francisco Bay Area, looking for a new church home, and uh, would like to find out more, tell us a bit about ministry and life at Harbor Life in Fremont. Well, thank you. You know, we have a Sunday morning church celebration every Sunday at 1030 a.m. That's our biggest all-church gathering. Everybody comes together. We have a wonderful time of worship. Uh, we sing some contemporary worship songs that just refocus our perspective on the Lord. Um, we And then there's a sermon where we uh, try to apply God's word to our daily life. And so that's about an hour and a half service. Uh, where we come together, join together every Sunday morning. So, of course, that's our biggest event in our in our big venue, in our sanctuary there. And, uh, and then we've got a lot of other things going on through the week. We have a Celebrate Recovery ministry, which is fantastic. Uh, so many people have come into the church through Celebrate Recovery because they've identified a need in their life and... Uh, it's it is a it's a recovery program. It uses the twelve steps, but it 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 does it from a perspective of Jesus teaching uh, on in uh, Matthew chapter five, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's really it's really a neat program that so many people have come to find freedom through, uh, and that's a, a fantastic ministry of the church that meets on Friday night every Friday at seven p.m. And I believe the last Friday of the month, they have a, a free barbecue at 6 p.m., but that's going on on our campus every week. We've got a lot of different small groups for men, for women, prayer groups, interest groups, basketball. You know, there's volleyball groups that are on and off, and there's ping pong groups that have been going on. So there's all kinds of different interest groups that people meet up together, and some of those are great opportunities for people who don't have a lot of history with church, but just would, would like to be a part of, would like to make friends and meet people. So we'd invite people to go to our website or give us a call at the office and we can help connect you to some of those groups as well. Um, we have a prayer team ministry that I'm really excited about because uh, I just think it's a great way that, uh, a, a special thing that God has done here. We have a prayer team that goes through a discipleship process. They're accountable to each other. They they go to small groups uh, during the week and receive training and preparation and just as well share life together. And then on Sunday, they're available after the services to pray for people just about anything. And, you know, the Holy Spirit has used these people in incredible ways to help, you know, unlock some issue that someone's been facing, to bring a healing, um, to help someone uh, who you know, needs restoration in their life, maybe in their marriage, maybe in their finances or different issues. So it's been really neat. Uh, so that's our prayer team ministry. That's another big thing that's going on here. A few, so few highlights. Pretty, pretty broad and diverse dynamic ministry opportunities, fellowship opportunities as well. Again, at Harbor Light Church, located at 4760 Thornton Avenue in Fremont. Worship times, as Pastor Inman mentioned, are Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. And to gain more information about any of the ministry opportunities and some of the unique programs that are available through Harbor Light, you're welcome to check out the website, harborlight.com. That's harborlight.com. 
Pastor Tim Inman, Executive Pastor with Harbor Light Church in Fremont. Tim, we appreciate so much you sharing some of your life stories and experiences and, and insights, and uh, I'm sure our listeners have also been blessed by hearing from you today. So thanks again for carving out some time to spend with us. Thank you, Craig. It was a pleasure. We are continuing in our ship series, which is about all different kinds of relationships. And we're specifically focusing on companionship today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. You're moving us forward into positive relationship, nurturing relationships. Lord God, today, especially as we focus on companionship, we ask that you would show us how to become the companion that the people in our lives need, and also how to find the companionship that we deeply need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we talk about companionship, you know, it's a little bit distinct from some other words that we use. A friend could be a close contact or someone we barely know. For example, you may have hundreds of friends on social media but I know some of those you haven't seen for over 20 years, right? Uh, a partnership is like an alliance. It, it can be significant or it could be just a business relationship. But companion or companionship is a word we use for those key relationships that grow deep and go the distance. A companion is someone who gets you. Now, I want you to think about who have been your most significant companions in life. Maybe it's a child, a parent, a spouse, a, a sibling, a coworker. But they're the people that have given you encouragement and support when you needed it the most. Somehow they knew exactly what you needed to hear when you needed to hear it. Also, another way we use the word companion is companion animals or dogs can be companion animals, which is kind of funny to bring into the conversation. But I want to share with you a story about my daughter, Claire, and our dog, Buddy. And I promise this is going to be relevant. So don't discount it, even though we're talking about a pet here. <laughs> my daughter, Claire, was getting ready to go away to an internship in Ireland. So we knew that she was going to be gone for a long time. And we began to talk about what her distance would mean for the family. And she said, do you think Buddy will remember me when I get home? And uh, then she went off to Ireland. She came back in December. We went to pick her up at SFO, San Francisco Airport, and we brought Buddy along. Somehow, this whole pandemic thing, we noticed something changed. People started bringing their dogs to the airport, the supermarket, Target, everywhere there's people carrying their dogs. And Buddy's this tiny little dog. So we thought, we'll bring Buddy with us. I know he'll be excited to see Claire. So we had Buddy there in the airport. And we were in the international terminal. And we're waiting there outside the gate where most of the international flight passengers come through after they've gone through customs and we're waiting and waiting but we see no sign of Claire and we didn't see many Irish looking people get off the plane either so we thought okay are we in the right place are we in the wrong place we knew it was going to take a little bit longer because it was an international flight but we're as we were waiting there with Buddy on a leash suddenly he began to act as though he'd seen a cat and by that, I meant he went absolutely nuts, pulling on the leash, looking up at me, want, just wanting to run uh, towards the other side of the terminal. And I thought, that's funny. But I suddenly sensed that something different was going on. So I looked at my wife and the rest of my family and I said, I think Buddy knows something. I'm going to follow him. And so I left where I was standing, where I thought Claire would be coming outside the gate. And I followed Buddy about a third of a mile, somewhere between a quarter mile and a half mile to the other side of the terminal. Now, what I wasn't thinking about was the fact that sometimes some flights from Ireland actually go through customs on that side. And so when they come through 
SFO, they actually come through the, the far end of the terminal and they go through baggage claim and they come into a different room. And as it turned out, that's where Claire was coming through. So as I followed Buddy, we got to the area. There were literally oh, probably over 100 passengers that were all filling up this small room where that was a baggage claim facility. And sure enough, there was Claire. Somehow, Buddy sensed her presence, just kind of like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader sensed each other's presence in the force before they saw each other. I'm not trying to start any new theology here, but there was some kind of unseen connection, something that Buddy sensed. Somehow he knew Claire had landed and he brought me right to her. Wow, what a unusual and still head-scratching experience. You know, we have an American expression uh, about companions when we say two people are tied at the hip. Have you used that one? Companions often seem to have that kind of invisible connection. I said before, they know just the right thing to say at the right time. Uh, I remember when my brothers and I were growing up, at some point, sometimes we would say the same random word at the same exact time. And then we'd look at each other like, why did we both just say that word? It's like we're sharing a brainwave almost. A Hebrew word from the Old Testament of the Bible that often gets translated to companion is Shaber, C-H-A-B-E-R, and it has this connotation. It means knit together. When two people are knit together, they're companions, and that sounds kind of like tied up the hip. Maybe that's where that expression came from. So a companion then is someone whose life and destiny has become tied to your own. I'm going to say that again. A companion is someone whose life and destiny has become tied to your own. Boy, it's important then that we have good companions, isn't it? Because companions influence our destiny. What direction are you headed? Are your companions pulling you towards a positive destiny or a dangerous destiny? Well, this is especially important for young people. Young people, you are at a stage in your life where you are choosing your lifelong companions, whether that be marriage partners, uh, business associates, or best friends. These are, you're, you're making connections with people who will help shape your destiny for good or bad. So make good choices. I am fortunate to have had a few great companions that have nurtured my destiny. One of my buddies' name is Rob Teal, and we went to high school together in Southern California, and we used to like to go off campus for lunch. One particular uh, weekday, we had gone to uh, maybe Carl's Jr., one of the fast food. No, it was, uh, yeah, we'll just say it was a fast food restaurant, and it was always fun to do that because you would get to see other kids from other high schools, and, you know, we always had our eyes out looking for attractive young ladies. And uh, as we sat there, two young women come in about our same age, uh, probably 16 or 17. And Rob goes, hey, ladies, you want to sit with us? And sure enough, they got their food and they came and sat with us. And we had never met before. So we had a very uh, fun and interesting conversation, exciting conversation, getting to know these two young women. And then suddenly my friend Rob, he took it to another level. He began to share the good news about Jesus Christ with these two young women who were just sitting there. And, and they began to pour out their hearts about the own, their own struggles that they had been facing in life. And one of those young women dedicated her life to Christ. Isn't that incredible? Well, my friend Rob, one night he was having a a real hard time falling asleep and he had heard some really disturbing noises outside and he he just had felt like almost an, an oppressive force there in his bedroom and so he did what he knew how to do which was begin to pray and intercede and he began to pray the Lord to the Lord and then he began to pray in tongues 
and he began to uh, pray in the spirit and come against and he began to worship the Lord. And as he did, he felt the environment of his room change. And what went from feeling oppressive began to feel joyful. He began to feel God's love. And he said, uh, Tim, as I was praying, God spoke to me about my life, but I also saw you. And he spoke to me about your life. And he said that you're going to marry early and you're going to become a pastor. And that encouraged, he shared that with me. And you know what? It encouraged me. And it was also accurate. So I thank God for companions uh, who have been willing to speak into my life. And there have been others. In the cleansing stream course, we use the term soul tie to describe the way a past or present relationship can have an enormous influence on our emotional health and our spiritual freedom. The effect can be negative, but two souls tied together for a good purpose can be a very good thing. And I would say, Rob Teal, you're a good soul tie. And that's exactly how the Bible describes the relationship between David, who was David was a shepherd boy who would later become king, and Jonathan. And Jonathan was the prince. He was the son of King Saul. And they developed an incredible friendship I'll just give you a little bit of background information. Like I said, David had been a shepherd boy um, and God had chosen him really supernaturally through Samuel, the prophet, that he would one day become king. But in the meantime, yeah, he was a shepherd boy. And then the Philistine army attacked the nation. And David was the only one as a, as a young shepherd boy that had the courage to defeat the giant Goliath and uh, free God's people from that tyranny. And Saul had invited him also into his household. The king had invited him to play the harp. And so David began to get to know the royal family. And as David and Jonathan developed a great friendship, King Saul became very jealous And he began to plot to murder David. David had to run for his life. And actually for 12 years, David lived on the run as he was being hunted by King Saul. During that time, Jonathan came to David multiple times to encourage him in the Lord, scripture tells us. And it uses another word to describe the relationship of Jonathan and David. And I want to read that to you from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now we've just read that those same words. The word for companionship means knit together. So the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan became a key encourager and ally of David. And it's worth noting that Jonathan should have been Saul's heir as his son. In fact, that's why, that's part of the reason Saul was hunting David is he saw David as a threat to his power and his rule. But instead of Jonathan seeing David as a threat, uh, he saw him as a companion and he supported him. Our close companions know us well enough to know exactly what discourages us and exactly what we need to hear to encourage us. And I want to ask you at this moment, who are you encouraging? Who are you pouring into? And do you have a few companions that are pouring into you? Do you have people that can challenge you when you need to be challenged and that can encourage you when you need to be encouraged? Take a moment and ask the Lord to lead you to someone who can encourage you and someone you can encourage. Our companions can make us or break us. And we want to look at some scriptures 
that, spell that out from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That's a great scripture because, you know, when sometimes we can be hurt by our friends when they're trying to help us, when they reveal maybe a shortcoming or a spouse, when they share with us somewhere that we're not really measuring up. We don't want to hear it. It's hard. Our self-defense kicks in and we, we, we want to come back against that. But the wounds of a friend can be trusted. They're good. They help us grow. They develop us. They, they sharpen us. Scripture says that two friends sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. And it's a picture of like a knife or a sword being sharpened. Those kind of wounds we can trust. But the opposite is true as well. An enemy may multiply kisses. Some of the people who are flattering you are not actually an ally. Have you ever experienced that before? Someone that came on syrupy sweet and then in the end they had a dagger. So with the potential of how valuable a trustworthy, a good companion is, we must treasure godly companions. And let me say this. Every Christian should have friends that aren't Christian. In fact, hopefully we have enough of them that when we're living before them, they begin to see the difference that Christ is making in our life and they want to become a Christian too. Uh, but you know what? The, we need to analyze who are the people that are pouring into us. We want to make sure the people who are pouring into us the people that we're depending on for that encouragement, those companions are people who are headed the same direction as us. Proverbs 18.22 says that a man's greatest treasure is his wife. She is a gift from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22. And I like to hope that the same opposite is true. I'd like to hope that husbands are also a gift to their wives. Uh, but one of the greatest areas of companionship, without a doubt, potentials for companionship is marriage. And certainly we shouldn't enter into marriage with someone that isn't a companion, Right. When Jesus was asked about divorce, and as I begin to talk about divorce, I just want to let you know, I'm not, we're not here uh, to add, to heap guilt and shame on anyone who's experienced divorce. Uh, if you have exper experienced divorce, you have been hurt, you've been victimized by that, uh, and we're not here to heap shame on you, but we want to encourage all of us in marriage and who are pursuing marriage about how to do that in a positive way. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he quoted from the book of Genesis, chapter two, verse 24. And it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And I wanna focus on that phrase, one flesh. And we're gonna talk about that for a little bit here. What does it mean to be one flesh. And we're going to transition to talk a little bit specifically about companionship and marriage. And if you're not married yet, hey, be patient with me, but you might pick up something that's going to be valuable for the future or even valuable in another relationship. So please don't tune us out. Jesus then added, after quoting that, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So you get the idea. There's this picture of in marriage, we're joined together as one flesh. And Jesus emphasized, please don't separate that one flesh. He's answering a question about divorce, but 
Is it possible that we can violate the one flesh union long before the paperwork for divorce is filled out? Absolutely. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that divorce doesn't happen in one moment or one decision. It happens by degrees over years. Ask yourself this moment, is there any belief or attitude or action in my life that is violating the one flesh principle between myself and my spouse? See, there's many ways we can violate God's one flesh ideal long before the word divorce comes up. What ways are my actions or attitude threatening to fragment that one flesh union that God desires for me? One of the ways, one of the things that violates that is domination. You know, and a lot of times domination, people find scriptures from the Bible to support the idea of dominating their spouse. The idea that one person can make all the decisions, that one person's will and way goes no matter what, no matter what the ideas and the contributions of the other. Well, that's simply not biblical. The Bible uses the word submission when it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But that is never intended to be used as a weapon in marriage where one partner desires to dominate the others. In fact, Paul's instructions for wives to submit their husbands was part of a larger encouragement that he gave to all Christians to submit to existing power structures at the time. He told wives to submit their husbands, but he also told slaves or servants to submit to their masters And he even told the Hebrew people to submit to the invading force of Rome. Their oppressors, submit to your oppressors. And that may sound strange to us, especially to us as Americans, because we're very much about defending our freedom. But, you know, in, in, there's something that's very countercultural about following Christ. And sometimes even counter to our intuition. But you know, it's real and it's powerful. And the Apostle Paul was teaching us as believers in Jesus that the, the way that we respond to oppression is by coming in the opposite spirit. Wow. Wow. We can defeat oppression by coming in the opposite spirit. And the kingdom of God actually wins as we obey Christ. We're not submitting to the oppressor because we agree with what they're doing. We're doing it to give glory to God, our creator. So also Paul's words on submission and marriage were part of a larger instruction for mutual submission within the body of Christ. He told everyone, submit to one another in love. And he also said of the husbands, he said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we know that Christ loved the church by dying for us on the cross, by suffering and submitting to death on the cross. Jesus himself shared what that kind of love was like when he said there's no greater love than this than he that would lay down their lives for their friends. And there's more than one way to lay down your life. You don't have to be a martyr to lay down your life. You can lay down your life in degrees every day by laying down your preferences, by laying down your will and your way and serving the other. So when you get that whole picture together, you can see that the Apostle Paul and certainly the Lord was not trying to set up a structure where one partner dominates the other. But that leads to the question, if one person doesn't get to make all the decisions, how do we resolve differences in our relationships, especially marriage? Well, we do what scripture teaches, which is we reason together. You know, whenever one part says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it my way. You know, that's a declaration of independence. And that fragments the one flesh bond. 
So how do we do it? Well, I invited my wife, Laurie, to come. And Laurie's going to join me on stage. And we're just going to give a little hypothetical. We're going to do a uh, role play. And we're going to use this as an opportunity to talk about how we can successfully resolve differences, resolve conflict. Can you stand a little closer to me here, Laurie? Great. So we have differences pop up all the time. Different ideas about how to spend money, about how to uh, raise our kids, about what we're going to do with our time, right? Even sometimes about extended family and decisions that are being made. And we love each other and we love all the family, but we still have those kind of differences pop up all the time, right? So I thought, what, what, what if we come up with kind of a fake argument this morning uh something uh it's i promise is totally fictional maybe (laughs) but we're gonna say for example that i've gone out to lunch with uh with some friends and i've spent quite a bit of money without looking at the bank account right and it's maybe close to the end of the pay period and maybe you had eyes Uh, to spend that money on something else, but now it's gone. So you're going to come to me and let me know that I made a mistake. Let's, let's go from there. Okay. I can do this. Um, Tim, did you go to Co Curry? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Co Curry. Oh yeah. I was going to tell you, I I invited uh, Kirk and a couple guys and yeah, it was really great. We had a great lunch and you know what? But the thing is, is I didn't know They've raised their prices, and one of the guys that was there, I didn't know he was going to be there. It ended up being more than I thought, but yeah, I, I, I did, but it, it was good that I did. Yeah, well, I was planning on going to Target and buying some new pillows, because we're having people over, and I need to have new pillows. Okay, so right now, I want to tell you, there's a lot of things that would pop into my mind, and one of them is, didn't we just buy pillows for the couch? Another one might be, uh, well hey, you know, I, I make most of the money. I should be able to spend it how I want, right? Now, that would be a vi- both of those would be terrible things to say at this point. Uh, and I, and I want to tell you, a lot of times we have the most genius ideas to come back with uh, words that would actually hurt our partner, that would be unhelpful, and that would also expose what a big jerk we are, right, if we say them. So we're not going to say those things. And I want to teach you, kind of a, a, a system for resolving conflict, okay? So the first thing you do in, in this is you allow each person to have a full turn. Every, each person gets to talk as long as they want to talk without being interrupted, okay? Then after you've heard them say their side, before you respond back with anything, you repeat what you've heard them say, especially uh, what you've heard them say about how it made them feel. So now it's my turn to respond to Laurie and I'm going to say, okay, Laurie, well, what I hear you saying is that you noticed that I spent the money and you were unhappy about that because you had other plans for that money. And was there anything else about how that made you feel? Yeah, it just made me feel like uh, you didn't communicate with me and I had no idea. It just really caught me off guard. And you had those plans to spend. Yes. And so um, I want to say that now, I, now that I've heard you say that, I realize how that impacted you because you had plans for those funds and you couldn't rely on your plans because I made my own without telling you. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Well, now that I've heard you say that and I can understand how that made you feel, I didn't want to make you feel like your plans aren't important because they are. And, you know, we can talk about what our priorities are with finances, but I shouldn't have spent that money without talking to you. And I apologize. I forgive you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Okay, so there's just a little walkthrough. You know, sometimes not every uh, conflict is going to be that easy or that clean, you know, but you can honor one another. As we like to say here at Harbor Light, you can learn to fight fair. That means you, throughout the conversation, you honor each other. And the goal, it's not me against her. It's her and I together against the problem. And so we're going to listen to each other. We're going to especially listen for words that describe 
feelings, how this decision or how this problem has affected the heart and how we can find a win that we're going to both move forward successfully together. So that's just a little something to think about, about how do we resolve conflicts with our companions, especially our spouses? We take turns, we be respectful, we don't interrupt, we repeat back, we ask, did I get it right? You know, that's another thing. A lot of times there's misunderstandings, unnecessary misunderstandings that amplify the conflict. So if you ask that word after you've repeated back, you say, did I get it right? Or is there anything else you want to add before responding? Finally, folks, in addition to our, our friends, in addition to our spouses and family members that can be great companions, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as a, command, as a companion for all that put their hope in him. And I know many of you are facing challenging life problems, issues. Your, your time is uh, fragmented. You have responsibilities that you feel like are more than you can carry. You're up against decisions that you feel like you're not equipped to make on your own. You know, Jesus said that for all who put their trust in him, who put their hope in him and turn to him for salvation, he has the Holy Spirit as a guide, as a gift. He said, in fact, he said to his disciples, it's better for you if I go, because when I do, I will send the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, who is the paraclete is the Greek word, which means, guess what? companion, one who walks alongside. So we are, we, we need to have human companions, but we also can benefit so greatly from the Holy Spirit as a companion. And many of you would say, well, I've never heard the Holy Spirit talk to me. You know what? If you spend time in prayer, if you spend time in worship, if you spend time in God's word, and then you take time to listen, you take time to tell him about those situations in your life. He will guide you. You know, sometimes we want to give him yes or no question. Should I do this or should I do that? And he doesn't always answer in the moment when we put him on the spot. Sometimes he's more interested in us taking the journey and learning through life. But I can promise you he is a guide. He is a comforter. He is a friend. I can tell you through my life again and again and again on the ordinary days and on the decision days, he's been there with me to help. And so I want to pray with you right now. And let's, let's pray together in, and ask the Lord for his help in this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love to help those who turn to you, especially when we turn to you with our heart wide open, ready to follow you with everything that we are. So we want to take a moment to position ourselves that way. We open our hearts to you, trusting you, God, that you're a good God, that you have good things for us. And we thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to open this relationship. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you've offered. We thank you for salvation, that you've made a home in heaven for us. And we invite you in to lead us. And Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. Your word says your Holy Spirit will come and live in us. So come and live in us, Holy Spirit, and lead us and be that companion that we need going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Tim Inman, Executive Pastor of Harbor Light Church of Fremont, located at 4760 Thornton Avenue in Fremont, worship time Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. You're welcome to check out the website, harborlight.com. That's harborlight.com. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. 
While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.